All right, let's turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5, verses 13 and 14. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, this is the confidence we have in Him. Here it is, folks. This is a biggie. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Let's pray. Father, this is a great passage. Only two verses, but there's a lot here to unpack. We ask you to be with us now. Cause your Holy Spirit to teach us and lead us into all truth. Lord, help us to receive that which you want to impart to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. These things I have written to you. This has been a major theme in this book of 1 John. John uses the phrases, I write or I have written, time after time in this letter, emphasizing the importance of his words, which are God's words. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things I write to you. Why? So that you may not sin. How many of you here today would like it if you never sinned again? So would God, for that matter. <laughs> but we know that we're going to, unfortunately, because we're still battling our flesh. It's the new man versus the old man. All through the book of Romans, we talked about this. But John's, one of John's purposes in writing this letter of 1 John, so that you may not sin. David said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So John is saying, I'm writing these things to help you with this struggle. One of the ways that we don't sin is by finding out what sin is, and that's revealed to us in the Word of God. And we're also taught in the Word of God how to avoid sin. And I love the way John does this. First of all, he says, I've written it so that you may not sin. And then he goes, the very next sentence, and if anyone sins. So in other words, what he's saying is, you don't want to sin. I don't want you to sin. I'm trying to help you not sin. But here's what to do when you do. Not if you do. When you do. We have an advocate. That's a legal term, like a defense attorney. Jesus. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So first line of defense, if you will, we try to avoid sin. And God's Word is a tremendous help in helping us to avoid sin. Because as we begin to have these thoughts, gee, I'd really like to do this or that or the other thing. But wait a minute. What does God's Word say? Oh, well can't go there. Not supposed to be sleeping with someone I'm not married to. How do I know? Because God says so. Not supposed to be sleeping with someone that somebody else is married to. How do we know? God says so. You see? I, these things I've written to you that you may not sin. But then, oops, I blew it. I fell. I gave in to the flesh. Now what? We go to our advocate, Jesus, our defense attorney. We confess to him. Lord, please help me, forgive me, I blew it, I sinned. And then Jesus vindicates us before the Father so that we can stay in right relationship with Him. 1 John 2.12 I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. So first of all, He says, I write to you that you may not sin, and when you do... <laughs> 
Go to your advocate. Go to Jesus Christ. And then he says, and I also write to you because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Because the enemy is constantly trying to browbeat us, beat us up, condemn us, knock us down, drag us down by reminding us of all of our sins. Do you ever experience that? See, God says he remembers our sins no more. He casts them as far as the east is from the west. Though your sins be as scarlet, though they be red as crimson, Isaiah chapter 1, I will make them as white as snow. 1 John 1, 9 that we studied quite a few weeks ago now. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But John says, I write to you because your sins are forgiven. Don't ever forget it. Sadly, other people sometimes will kind of heap condemnation on you. And they love to remind you of past sins, right? Why? Maybe they want to manipulate you. Maybe they want to get the other hand. Whatever the, the motivation, we shouldn't be doing that to one another. But sometimes we do. Satan is the accuser of the brethren, right? So John says, I write to you because your sins are forgiven. Don't you forget it. Every time someone, some other human being, or the devil himself, or one of his advocates comes to you and tries to remind you of your sins, you need to tell them, Get thee behind me, because in Jesus' name my sins are forgiven. 1 John 2.13 I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you've overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you've known the Father. This Verse 14, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. These are words of encouragement from John. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the wicked one. And you think, well, maybe, why is he writing them if these things are already true? Well, if you look back to verse 13 where we started, well, we're still in verse 13, really. But at the end of the verse, he says that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Our faith needs to be constantly strengthened, bolstered, uplifted, because everything about this world is doing just the opposite, is it not? We are bombarded daily with things. The thief, John 10.10, 10, comes with to steal, to kill, to destroy. Every day we are bombarded with things that are intended to weaken our faith, drag us down, discourage us, make us want to give up on following God, following Christ. And so we do need the constant uplifting, reminding. That's what John's doing here. I'm writing to you. You already know this stuff. You have known him who is from the beginning. You have overcome the wicked one. But by the way, it's a daily struggle, is it not? It's really sad because sometimes people kind of tend to think, well, you know, 20 years ago, I went forward in church. I accepted Christ. I thought my life would be perfect after that. Really? Which planet are you living on? No, if anything, it's probably going to get more difficult because you're going to encounter a greater degree of opposition than you ever have before. When the devil's got you on his side, he doesn't have to do a whole lot. He can just leave you to your own devices. But once you come to Christ and you begin to follow God and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you now become a threat to Him. And He doesn't take that lightly. 
John is writing these things to those who do know him, to those who are strong, to those who have overcome the wicked one, because John and God who has spoken through John are dedicated and committed to helping us continue to know him, continue to be strong, to continue to overcome the wicked one, because this is a battle we will be engaged in until the day that we see him face to face. I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. We've talked about this so many times, but Jesus Christ, Yeshua, or Joshua, means God is our salvation. He is Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, Emmanuel. We talked about this, I believe, just last week. He's also referred to as the Word Big W, the Lamb of God, the one and only, the chief cornerstone, the rock, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Alpha and the Omega. And I love this one. This is so cool. And it depends on which translation you're using. The New American Standard Bible that I'm going to read from and also the NIV, this is how they put it. 3 John 1, 7. For they went out for the sake of the name, big N, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, here in 3 John, John refers to Jesus, I love this, the name. Do you love that? Jesus is the name. There is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's why Jesus is the name. You know, you get all these people with their little fancy nomenclatures. There's the rock. His real name is Dwayne. <laughs> Dwayne Johnson. No, if there's any Dwaynes out here, no offense. But I don't like my name. I wish I was, my parents would have named me something besides Gary, but that, oh well. But I'm glad it's not Dwayne. Sorry, Dwaynes. Sorry, all the Dwaynes out there. The rock. Yeah, man, he's big and bad. Hey, how's it going, Dwayne? <laughs> the name! Jesus! That's what I'm talking about. Yeshua! Who believe. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. You believe everything about him. Son of God, Savior, Messiah, all the names I just read off. They went out for sake of the name. Acts 4.12, I read that. And I'll, this is just my opinion, but I think perhaps we should be wary of people who talk about God all the time, but never mention the name of Jesus. Hello? And that, not always, but sometimes is even creeping into the church through the seeker-friendly, purpose-driven, emergent movements in the church today that uh, they keep things as just generic as they possibly can so that nobody gets offended. Be wary of people who talk about God all the time but never mention the name of Jesus. Be wary of people who never use the name of Jesus in their prayers. John 14, 13. Jesus says, whatever you ask... I'm not being legalistic about this, by the way, but I'm not sure we've always talked about it as much as we should. 
because it, it apparently is important. It's emphasized in the scriptures. Whatever you ask in my name, this is Jesus talking, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's our mediator. He's our go-between. You can't enter into relationship without God unless Jesus is there in the middle. So he's saying, if you ask in my name, John 14, 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's why I say we might need to be wary of people who perhaps pray to God but never ever bring the name of Jesus into the conversation. John 16, 23. In that day you will ask me nothing. He's talking about that day when he goes. He ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1. The Bible tells us he's now seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. He's the advocate, just like I said a little while ago. In that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Now, again, I don't think this is something that we should be legalistic about. I don't think God is legalistic about it. But there does seem to be a proper way to approach God. And according to Jesus, it's to ask the Father in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, I come to you now in Jesus' name. Now again, sometimes we just talk directly to Jesus, don't we? Or even maybe the Holy Spirit. I don't think God's going to beat us up over that, but I think we should make a, a concerted effort to pray our prayers in the way that God has laid them out for us. What do you think? For maximum effectiveness, if you will. I mean, Jesus has laid it out pretty clearly in the Scriptures. If you ask anything in my name, in Jesus' name, I think that does another thing. It kind of puts a qualifier on our prayers. What exactly are you comfortable asking God in Jesus' name? What types of things are you comfortable asking God for when you bring Jesus into the mix? Certainly not, Father, please cause that person to leave their husband or wife so they can be with me. People have prayed those kind of prayers for, before. Don't doubt me. I know it for a fact. I know it for a fact. People have prayed ungodly prayers in Jesus' name. That, to me, is risky business. Don't go there. Not only are we instructed to pray to the Father in Jesus' name, we need to remember that when we do that, whatever we ask Him for, it's just like in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul writes, if you join yourself to a harlot, you're joining Jesus to that harlot. That ought to give you pause, don't you think? I would think so. Good passage, by the way. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You're bought with a price. You're no longer your own. God owns you. He paid for you with the blood of Christ. In that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give you. But look at the end game here in this first verse here, verse 13. That you may know that you have eternal life. That's the most important thing of all. 
Let me read the whole verse again. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We're talking about all the things here that John wants us to know. He's written to us that we might know. And nothing is more important than knowing that we have eternal life. John's been referring to these readers that he's writing to over and over again, and that includes us, as his dear children. Now, do you suppose John's dear, dear children already knew that they had eternal life? Yeah, I think so. But it is the role and responsibility of the shepherd, in this case John, in this case me, it's the role and responsibility of the shepherd to feed, comfort, console, and encourage the sheep. And so I'm here today as God's representative, just like John, telling you, you have eternal life in Christ. That's the big deal right there. Because again, others, and more importantly, or not more importantly, but more significantly, perhaps, the devil. Does he ever come to you and say what? Do you really believe all this? Do you really believe that there's an afterlife? you believe in eternity? you believe there's a heaven? Come on. You ever hear voices like that? I think we all have from time to time, folks. The devil's not going to rest until he's put into the pit. It's him talking, but he makes it sound like it's you coming up with the idea. Very true. John 21, 17. This is when Jesus has that conversation with Peter. Do you love me, Peter? He said to him the third time, so this happens three times. Peter's getting pretty upset, pretty, pretty bummed out, pretty frustrated. The third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time. But Jesus was trying to bring home the point. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, this is a good answer. Peter has some good answers. See, sometimes he's a real bozo, but he also has some good ones. This is a good one. Lord, you know all things. I can't pull the wool, pardon the expression, pull the wool over your eyes. You know that I love you, Lord. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter, if you really love me the way you say you do, and I know you do, Peter, but this is really important, Peter. Feed my sheep. That's what John's doing here. He's writing so that you and I may know that we have eternal life because there's always going to be somebody or something trying to convince you that you don't. And at the end of the day, that should be what keeps us going. Some people give up on God because they didn't get the job they thought they should get, the raise they thought they should get, the car or the house or the husband or wife or whatever it may be. God let me down. So I'm walking away. God didn't let you down. He died on the cross for your sins. He has imparted to you the gift of eternal life. In this world you will have trouble or tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. God never promised you a rose garden, Sandy Posey, thank you very much. She's the one who sang the song. I never promised you a rose garden. Remember that one? And Jesus ain't Tiny Tim either. Tiptoe through the tulips. No. 
What he did promise you was eternal life. Hello? And not just a lousy eternal life. He promised us paradise. More fantastic, more amazing, more incredible than you or I could ever even imagine. And that's what John's doing. He's feeding the sheep. He's encouraging us. That's his job. That's my job. That's what I'm called to do. So if you wonder why is he telling these people what they already know, it's because he wants them to continue to know it. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, he wants you to make it to the finish line. At the end of his life, Paul says, I've run the race. I've fought the good fight of the faith. I have fulfilled my calling in Christ. I'm ready to see him face to face. That's what God wants for every one of us. Verse 14. Again, God's plan, his purpose, his desire is that his kids, you and I, will know that we know that we know that we are his. No doubt. And we can. That's what's cool about it. You know why we can? Because it doesn't depend upon us. It doesn't depend upon your good works. Now, if you're truly born again, if you're a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, your life should be characterized by good works. But again, we're battling the old nature. Sometimes we do good, sometimes we don't do so good, right? But the reason we can know that we know that we know that we belong to Him and He belongs to us is because He did all the heavy lifting. It's called Calvary. It's the cross. He paid the price so that we could know that we know. And that, again, we, sometimes we talk about Calvinism, Arminianism, all that. Any teaching that has to do with our salvation being connected or related to good works is a problem because it's not biblical. If we could be saved by our own good works, Jesus would never have had to die on the cross in the first place. The reason he died on the cross is because we could never be good enough because God's standard is perfection. And the only perfect man who's ever walked the earth is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Again, the enemy will try to beat you up. You're not really saved. Are you kidding? Would God really save somebody like you? Give me a break. Well, that only works on you if you somehow have been wrongly taught or wrongly come to the belief that your works have anything to do with your salvation because they don't. If they do, you're in big trouble. And as I've shared with you, maybe your experience is different than mine, but as I've read many of the, the classics by some, what I consider some of the great men and women of faith down through history, from what I can tell, just about every one of them, the longer they'd been with the Lord the more they were aware of their own sinfulness. It didn't get to where they thought, well, man, I've really arrived now. This is pretty cool. In fact, I'm just about perfect. It was Paul who wrote after about 30 years with Christ, I am the chief of all sinners. And my experience has been much the same. I look back on my life and my younger years, and I was, you know, I just, oh, praise the Lord, hallelujah. I just, you know, life is good. And now I wrestle daily with what a vile wretch I am. And you know what that does? 
It doesn't heap condemnation on me. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8. It doesn't heap condemnation on me. You can tell whether it's God or the devil because if you're feeling condemned, it's the devil. God convicts us of sin so that we can get rid of it. We can confess it. We can repent. We can be washed. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Peter says, oh, wash me all over, Lord. I want the whole spa treatment. Jeez, I can't imagine the look on Jesus' face. Peter, you don't need a bath. You just need your feet washed. And what, what Jesus was saying is, Peter, you're already saved. But as you walk through this life, your feet are going to get dirty. And you need to have me wash them. And that's what daily confession and repentance is all about. It's about getting your feet washed by Jesus. And so when I say that the longer I'm with the Lord, the more I'm aware of my own sinfulness, it's actually a good thing because it just causes me to call out to Him all the more. I realize I can't get, a, I can't get by for one moment without Him. You don't just put your life on cruise control because you've now arrived, you've you got it made in the shade, baby. You're a child of God. That's true. But we must be totally dependent upon him every moment of every day. Apart from me, Jesus said in John chapter 15, you can do nothing. Philippians 4.13, my life verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but apart from him, I can do nothing. I think it's important to remember that. Sometimes people get to thinking they're pretty hot stuff. And they forget, apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. Verse 14, now this is the confidence that we have in who? Or whom? Him. One translation says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. And that's what this means. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God. What is that confidence? Confidence that God will hear and answer our prayers when we ask Him in Jesus' name. Confidence. We can have confidence, and we'll find out more in a moment what that looks like. But I heard this expression once. I don't think I came up with it. I think I got it somewhere. But it says, a faithless prayer is an impotent prayer. There's no power to a faithless prayer. Ephesians 3.11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So we have boldness and confidence to approach the Father through and in Jesus Christ. Noah Webster, 1828 Dictionary, the ultimate in my opinion. Noah Webster says that confidence is a trusting or reliance, an assurance of mind or firm belief, listen to this, in the integrity, stability, or veracity of another. Not yourself, another. The another is Jesus. Or in the truth and reality of a fact. And so, again, our confidence in approaching God, again, if we believe that it's based on good works, 
Man, I don't know about you. I don't think I'm going to have much confidence. I don't deserve to go into the presence of God. Only by the blood of Christ. If I know this, if I understand it, if I apprehend it, if I grab a hold of it and realize that it's all Him, I'm saved by grace through faith, not of works. And I know who Jesus is. He's the perfect, sinless, virgin-born Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and on the third day He rose from the dead. Then I can go to the Father with confidence in who Jesus is and what He's done for me. Does that make sense? This is the confidence that we have in approaching God. Paul writes in Philippians 3.3, for we are the circumcision. Paul says, hey, the circumcision of the flesh, that's a work of the flesh. It means nothing. It's a circumcision of the heart. We are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Jesus told the woman at the well, the time is coming and is now here when you will worship me in spirit and in truth. We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and listen to this. How many of you here today would like to be like the Apostle Paul? I sure would. What a great example. I can't think of a greater man of God. That's why so much of the New Testament was written by him. Even He was chosen after the others. On the road to Damascus, God singly and specifically chose him and called him out to be the apostle to the Gentiles. This last part of Philippians 3.3. 3. Let's read the whole thing again. We are the circumcision. It's a spiritual circumcision. Cut to the heart by the truth of God. That's what they said to Peter in the book of Acts. We're cut to the heart by your message about the Messiah. What should we do? Repent and be baptized. Cut to the heart. We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Do you see that? Folks, and I'll guarantee you, you might even think you're one of those people, you don't have much self-confidence, I don't even like the word, but low self-esteem, whatever, you know, you just don't think much of yourself or whatever. But I'll guarantee you, there are certain ways in which you still put confidence in your flesh. Which is crazy, really. You think about how vulnerable we are. We can be snuffed out at any moment. And we can't. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Only God can know the human heart. Paul says, We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in. You know why Paul said that? Because he used to have confidence in his flesh, right? He was a rabbi. He said, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, part of the Sanhedrin, sent out by the high priest to arrest Christians, put them in jail with the ultimate goal of killing them. He said, I had to put aside everything that I knew and count it as what? Dung. Right? Fecal matter. All of his knowledge, all of his learning, all of the confidence that he had put in his flesh, he said, I had to put it all aside so that I could follow Christ. No confidence in the flesh. The flesh, just like some of these crazier breeds of dog, Rover, Bowser, Pitbull, Rottweiler, some of the more dangerous breeds, they can turn on you in a heartbeat. 
There's something in the DNA, something in the genetics, something in the inbreeding that can be the greatest pet in the world. And one day, they turn around and kill everybody, chew them up, attack them. Our flesh is just like that. Do you know that? You can think that flesh is so great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're looking good. We're doing good. Got it all under control. And then one day that old flesh just turns and it chews you up. Putting no confidence in the flesh. It happens to the very best of us, so to speak. We've seen it. We've seen how the mighty have fallen. We've seen those examples. Sadly, unfortunately. In every segment of our society and even within the church, of course. Don't put any confidence in the flesh. You better keep it on a short leash. Right? And the thing is, when that flesh does turn like a vicious animal, not only does it tear you up, it tears up the people around you. Hello? Hebrews 4.16 in the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. See, that confidence is based upon God's grace, His unmerited favor, knowing we don't deserve it, but He gives it to us anyway because He's the God who is love. So that we may receive mercy. See, we get both sides of the coin here. The grace is getting what we don't deserve. The mercy is not getting what we do deserve. We may find, receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, to be able to be confident that when we go to the throne of God, that's what we're going to receive. Jesus said, ask, seek, knock. Which of you, if your son asked for a loaf of bread, would give them a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would give them a serpent? Therefore, how much more will your heavenly Father give the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask? The confidence is in knowing your God, knowing who he is, and going confidently before him expecting his grace, his mercy, his love. And again, you see how his word ties in here. So we can know his promises. We can know who he is. We're not just winging it. Shooting from the hip. He's made it all known to us, everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Now, here, this next part is really important. This is the confidence we have in approaching him. Here it is, the big secret revealed. If we ask anything according to his will. Seems like we've heard that somewhere before. Luke twenty-two forty-two. Jesus in the garden. Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And this is the Son of God talking. The second person of the Trinity here on earth in human form saying, wow, if there's another way, God, Father, this is a great time to let me know. Nevertheless, not my will. I told you before, the Son is always subservient to the Father, the Holy Spirit, subservient to the Son. One God, three persons. How and why it works that way, I can't tell you. You can ask Him when you see Him. That's how it works. John 4.34 Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus is my very sustenance. is to do God's will, the Father's will. That which sustains me, my food. 
That which keeps me going is being focused on doing the will of my Father in heaven. Him who sent me. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If we ask anything according to his will, Charles Ryrie, one of my favorite commentators, says that this is a gracious limitation because God's will is always best for his children. Again, I've seen so many in the body of Christ struggle with this. A couple things that are important, I think. One, when your prayers are directed toward someone, another person, another human being, you always have to keep in mind that God, and this is part of God's love, He's given to every human being a free will and the ability to choose. Do we understand that? We're not robots. We're not puppets. Because Peter tells us God is not willing that any should perish. And so if God were to impose and enforce his will, every single human being for all time would be saved. But God realizes God wants us to love him because we choose to do so. God wants us to obey him because we choose to do so. If that choice is eliminated, then there's no faith involved, is there? There's no trust involved. You're just a robot, by the way, which are coming soon to a planet near you and are actually already here. Oh, that reminds me. Better not go there. Got to stay on point, stay on message. We're running out of time. A gracious limitation. When we pray according to His will. Now again, there are... When you're praying for someone, now we already know, God is not willing that any should perish. So if God's perfect will were done, everybody would be saved. So you can pray with confidence for someone that you're concerned about that they might be saved. They might receive the gift of faith, the gift of repentance. But there is one qualifying factor there they have to choose. Do you get that? So you can't say if that person, first of all, you know you can get saved up until the moment that you take your last breath. Now that might be the way we'd like it to happen. And there are people who get ticked off by what they call the deathbed conversion. Well, that's not fair. I followed Jesus for 50 years and I didn't drink, smoke, chew, and go with the girls at do. And this guy gets saved on his deathbed? I don't think so. Woo! But you know what? It's not your choice. You have nothing to do with it. You don't get to say who gets saved and who doesn't and when. You don't get to do that. God does. And if somebody, as they breathe their last breath, calls out to God in Jesus' name for salvation, they're going to get it. And there ain't nothing you can do about it. But here's the problem for you. You may not even know about it till you get to heaven. And so you better watch out, babe. God didn't answer my prayer. They died and they didn't get saved. How do you know? You don't know. You're not going to know till you get there. So quit saying God didn't answer your prayer. And by the way, if that person rejects Christ, 
We've been talking about that lately. The Holy Spirit speaks to your heart, speaks to your mind, tells you who Jesus is, but you've got to decide. You can't blame God for that. It's their choice. It didn't turn out the way you wanted it to, but that doesn't mean God made a mistake. That doesn't mean God blew it. That doesn't mean God didn't answer your prayer. How do you know? God may have been sending his Holy Spirit to that person day and night, night and day, whispering in their heart and mind, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Savior, but you still have to choose. Are you tracking with me here? So who are we to get mad at God and say, oh, God didn't answer my prayer? Right? And again, this other qualifier is exactly what John's talking about, according to his will. And here's the sad thing. So many people don't take the time to read their Bible, to study their Bible. So, so much of God's will is made known to us in his word. We can pray according to his will by being saturated in his word so that we know what the right things to pray for are. But again, when we're not sure. Now again, I, don't, I can't claim to fully understand how this works, but if Jesus in the garden says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't totally understand how that works between the Father and the Son. But the important thing is Jesus ultimately says, Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Father, with all of my heart, I pray that you would heal so-and-so from their cancer, whatever it might be. That's our hope. That's our desire. It's probably theirs, too. But only God knows what his plan is. Maybe it's their time to go and be with him. Maybe if they don't know him, he knows, because he knows all things. He knows they will never come to him. And in fact, there could be even grace and mercy in that. Because we don't know what might happen to that person down the road if they were healed. I've seen firsthand how people have received a miraculous touch from God, and then they just turn around and go do their own thing anyway. There's no guarantee because God does a miracle in some person's life that that person's going to yield their life to God. See, we, sometimes we're just too simplistic in the way that we view prayer. But if you can just lay it all at the feet of Jesus, first of all, having prayers that are guided and directed by the truth of God's Word, not by your own desires. Now again, it's okay to want someone to be healed, to be saved, obviously. We should all be wanting those around us to come to know Christ. But being able to say, God, nevertheless, thy will be done. That's how we go through this life with peace in our hearts and no fear. Knowing that God, the Father knows best, that God is in control. And, you know, sometimes... We're probably not going to get through this. That's okay. Sometimes people pray for their spouses, right? Siblings, people near and dear to them. Father, please change this idiot. He's really made a mess of things. Problem is, 
Maybe that per thing that you want changed in your husband or wife, God doesn't want to change it for whatever reason. It may not make sense to you. Lord, why would you not want to change it? Look at this guy. Maybe God's using... You know what the Bible says? As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Or woman. Maybe God is using those irritating things in your spouse to sharpen you. And if he makes that husband or wife that perfect spouse that you want him to be, then the sharpening won't take place. You hear me? There's so much about this, see? We just simplify things too much. Well, if God's real, if God's alive, if his word is true, then I should be able to pray anything I want, and he answers it. You know what this world would be like if that were the case? There's a movie called Bruce Almighty with Jim Carrey, whom I don't personally like very much as a person. But the movie is very profound because he has an encounter with God, Morgan Freeman, who was God before Obama was. Um, <laughs> Obama said that himself, by the way. So Morgan Freeman bestows upon Jim Carrey the privilege of being God for a week. So he's there at his desk. He starts getting all these email prayer requests. And he starts hitting yes to every single prayer. And within hours, the world is in total chaos. What a profound and dynamic statement. If God answered every one of your prayers the way you wanted them answered, you might not even be here right now. At the very least, your life would probably be a total disaster because we ask for stupid stuff all the time. I think we're going to have to lay it down there today, folks. Let's stand. That's it for today. Can't go and do no more. That you may know. That's the title of the message. These things I have written to you that you may know. So if you want to know, you better stay in the know with God's Word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's so awesome. Lord, we can spend our whole lives studying your word, and we will still have yet to mind all the depths and riches contained because you wrote the book. And Lord, you are deep and wide. So help us just to be faithful. You want us to know. You've given us all the information, and we have to just continue to study your word, Lord, not as an intellectual pursuit, but for the enrichment of our souls, our hearts, our minds, that we may know the depths and riches of your love. We be guided by the truth of your word, that we might not sin, but when we do, to know that we have an advocate, that you will not forsake us, you will never leave us or forsake us. We have an advocate, Father, and his name is Jesus. He is our emotional support, Jesus. Father, we pray now as we close that you would receive our final offering of worship and that you'd pour out your spirit on those who come today for prayer. Please draw all that you would want to come by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.